0: We'll be starting in verse 11 in Colossians chapter 2. Pick up where we left off last week. Now last week we were talking about the, uh, talking about the treasures that are hidden in Christ through, through His Word and, and the wisdom and knowledge that is hidden in the Word of God. If you're willing to put in the labor to dig it out, that there is a treasure in the Word of God for us. And we are being warned not to allow, not to allow vain philosophies, traditions of men, uh, and, and rudiments of the world to rob us or spoil us of those treasures that God has in his word. And there, and, uh, the Colossians of course were being, were being rejoiced over that they were sticking to these things and that they were conducting themselves in a good manner as a church and they were standing strong in the faith and, and staying in God's word. and, and, you know, extruding those treasures out of God's Word and holding fast to those. And so, the, so that's where we left off last time, and today it's important as we go into this, keep that in mind that as, as I was preparing this message, I was very nervous because there's a couple doctrinal matters we're going to start going right into that Paul brings up that are actually kind of delicate and tough to deal with. Uh, but, the, but really what it is, is Paul says, there's treasures hidden in the Word of God, and he goes right into a section of scripture giving us god or divinely given scripture that we now as we dig into this we're going to start to get some treasures from this because there are things in here that will help keep you from stumbling keep you from having weak theology as is what Paul was telling them. Do not have a weak theology. Theology being the understanding of who God is, his character. If that's weak, then the rest of it's going to be weak, and you're going to have a weak church if you have weak theology. So as we go into it now, it's going to look like we're jumping right into a pretty deep look at a couple of these verses of what he's talking about, but that's because weak theology makes a weak church. The treasure has to be extruded from the word of God. It takes effort. If you dig for treasure, you got to grab a shovel and put in some work. Digging for treasure. It doesn't just bring itself out of the ground to you. It's not hid from you, it's hid for you, as I quoted last week from Matthew Henry. And it's hidden for us right here, and we just had to spend some time pulling it out tonight. In verse 11, "...in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism... "...wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers he made a show of them openly triumphing them over them in it let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come but the body is but the body is of christ let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment, ministered, and knit together, increased with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with, with the using. After the commandments and doctrines of men which things have indeed a show of wisdom and, and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you uh, that uh, just as you promised as we dig into this, that there is treasure here and knowledge and wisdom uh, that is found only in you, Lord. And tonight as we put in the effort, we ask that uh, you keep our, our minds diligent, paying attention, our hearts having all distractions and feelings and and cares of this world set aside that we can learn and listen and uh, have our theology strong in you, Lord, so that we have a proper view of you and a proper view of how to conduct ourselves as a church. Lord, we ask all this in your Son's name. Amen. All right. so tonight, like I said, we're going to jump into something that is a little bit tough. I was actually surprised as I got into verses 11 and 12. I'm glad I stopped there last week because verses 11 and 12 actually go into some doctrinal stuff that gets a little bit heavy and kind of tough to deal with. Not because it's hard, it's because, like I said last week, the Bible's easy. It takes someone to help you misunderstand it. There's been so much misunderstanding over the years that, as Paul's warning, there's traditions, there's vain philosophies, there are these things that just affect us, that you don't even pay attention to unless you start to compare them to the truth of God. Once you start to compare them to the truth, and you let the truth of Scripture compare itself to itself, and you start digging in, and look, what do these words mean? What, do, what does the Scripture mean? And we have the whole Word of God now with us. We have an advantage over Paul. We have an advantage over Peter and John and the apostles who are writing this, is that we have the complete Word of God. We have no excuse. And so as we look into this, those traditions and philosophies that are in the world around us actually skew what we think. And so Paul is discussing some points of weak theology as he was warning about to the Colossians Said, I'm glad you're not falling for this, but it's there. The The Greek culture around you is very much about intellectualism, about Gnosticism, the knowing of things, as he warns it. Those things that are not seen, but they're vainly puffed up, proclaiming that they know secret knowledge says, but it's around you, and it's affecting you. Whether you know it or not, you're either combating it or you're accepting it. You have to be careful, and he was was, uh, congratulating them that they were not falling into it, but he's warning them that over these next few verses, what we're going to see is we're going to see a couple different areas of warning that Paul gives. He's going to warn over customs. He's going to warn over legalism. He's going to warn over intellectualism or Gnosticism, and he's going to warn, warn over empty piety. That's four different areas he's going to warn over. And so what we start out with is the, the area of customs. And so he jumps right into circumcision and baptism. Everybody's two favorite subjects, right? So in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So some customs here, right? And we know Judaism... Circumcision was a custom uh, that, that's shown all the way from the first book in Genesis. That circumcision was, a, was something of a custom that the Jews did. It was not a Gentile practice, though maybe they did it. Uh, we have Gentiles that practice it today, but that was linked to Judaism. And so some try to use, as you see, there's a colon at the end of this paragraph. And so they continue and they say, well, buried with him in baptism, wherein also, You are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. So therefore, if circumcision was a sign of the Jew, baptism is a sign of the Christian, and therefore baptism is salvation. So there's a problem with this. Linking the two, if you're going to do it, you better do it correctly. And look at these two things correctly. So there's a problem once you say, well, circumcision proves that baptism is the mode of salvation. And, of course, this would be baptismal regeneration. This would be people who believe that dunking you into the water and pulling you out is the moment of salvation. You follow me on that? There's churches that teach this. I've witnessed the people who, when you say, tell me about your salvation, they say, well, I was baptized. Ooh, red flag. They say, I was baptized. At the beginning of their testimony, something is probably wrong. Maybe not. You've got to hear them out. But comparing circumcision to baptism, let's do it correctly, because there's a couple problems with this, is that this is also how Catholicism and other religions use under Christendom use these verses to show that infant baptism is suggested because circumcision was done to infants on the eighth day after they were born. So baptism must be permitted for infants because every time they view the word baptism, they equal that to salvation, and they also equal it to water. But we're going to show that baptism isn't always water, and baptism is never salvation. And so what is circumcision? Let's look at that. So there's no correlation between baptism and circumcision. There, there's not. There's a comparison. They're not the same. Circumcision has nothing to do with salvation, so it does not support baptism or infants being baptized or having any salvation power. So if you're going to rely on these two verses together to make that assumption, you're already starting off bad because circumcision has nothing to do with salvation. And so Acts 15.1, let's turn there real quick. We're going to have to do some proving here because this is a a difficult one. Acts 15.1... And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. So they were, this is not new. This is not a new thing that people are saying you have to do the symbolic to actually replace regeneration. This isn't new. The Jews were doing it. They said, you have to be in Acts 15.1. You have to be circumcised. Otherwise, you're not saved. This isn't a new concept. Now we see, oh, you have to be baptized, otherwise you're not saved. This isn't a new thing. Satan has been planting these philosophies and traditions that are hoaxes for a long time. He knows how to get you. He goes, oh, I know exactly what you're looking for, and you're going to see that with what Paul goes after. I know exactly what you're looking for. And circumcision, back then, oh, it was salvation. Now I say, oh, baptism, it's salvation. But there's a problem with that. Because Paul and Barnabas were fighting against this back in Acts 15. They were already battling this at the beginning. I mean, few years after Christ ascended, already a fight. It's still a fight today. So let's deal with infant baptism real quick. Because it's a difficult subject. I was baptized as an infant. And I never really understood why. Um, But it's good to dig into God's Word and start to figure out some of these things. So dealing with infant baptism. Between Romans 1, I just want to deal with this subject real quick before we go on. Between Romans 1, showing us a pattern and a pattern all throughout scripture, it's clear that a person has to understand and has to decide to reject or accept the truth of God for salvation. We see that pattern all throughout scripture. Romans 1 tells us that they see the things, they decide to reject. It shows us a pattern that's all throughout scripture. And so let's turn to Second Samuel chapter 12. I'll show you another thing here. 2 Samuel chapter 12. In verse 23. Some of you probably have heard this before. Some maybe not. This is David. Uh, he's, he's mourning the loss of his son. Bathsheba, and he says, but now he is dead. Their infant died. But now he is dead. Wherefore, should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Of course, the answer is no. David's asking a rhetorical question. But he says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David was going to heaven, and he said, I'm going to see my child. We see all throughout Scripture a pattern that it takes an understanding and a decision for salvation. It's reasonable to assume from that pattern and what we see here that infants fall underneath of a a period of time we call the the age of uh, uh, accountability, right? They, They don't have the ability to make a decision. They don't. God's not cruel. They don't have an ability to make a decision. An unborn child passes away in the womb, why would that child go to hell? That, I mean, that dips into what pastors have been warning with Calvinism, predestining people to go to hell. Did God say, oh, you get to go to hell because I'm not going to allow you to be born? It just doesn't make sense. And so logically looking at it with the pattern and what's here, it's safe assumption to say it looks like those who are before this, whatever this is, this age of accountability, when they don't get to make a decision, they seem to fall into an area where God has decided to take them And they do go to heaven. Well, when I say age of accountability, though, it's critical to know because this isn't a a thing. This isn't something in Scripture that was written down. And I think my personal belief is why we don't see this. Why we don't see this is, one, it's impossible to, to say what that exact day would be in somebody's life because there's so many variations in a person's development, the mental capacities, and even handicaps once you introduce those. It's impossible. Number two, I think, is, is because it would make us legalistic about it and we'd mess it all up anyways, just like we do everything else, right? We would take it and we'd become legalistic and mess it all up. When, but that's why it's important to understand and think about this age of accountability, right? Infant baptism doesn't make sense. It doesn't, according to Scripture. You can't find any support for it. There's, no, there's, no, there's not one evidence of it. There's not even a suggestion of it. There's only a pattern for understanding and deciding. And we see back in 2 Samuel of an infant dying and David saying, I will go be with him in heaven one day. We do, we do see things that show pretty strong support of that, but nothing of infant baptism. But understanding that there, there must be this age of accountability is important because that means that you should be preaching to your children from birth because you don't know what that age is, and I don't know what that age is. That's why you should be preaching the gospel to your children continuously while they're in your home. You do not know if they're saved. You should never assume they're born into a Christian family, therefore, they're just going to get it. That's not true. Otherwise, all Christian parents would have 100% of kids following Christ, and they don't. Which means you must need to preach to them continuously while they're in your home from birth. Just keep giving them the gospel and preaching to them. That is the salvation for a child, not sprinkling of water. Okay, so side adventure complete there on infant baptism. Let's get back to what he's talking about in verse 11 with circumcision, right? With comparing circumcision to baptism, like I said, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. But let's turn to Genesis chapter 17. We'll show you where this came from. Genesis 17. And I intentionally did not write down on my verses because there was a complaint that when we write them down and read them right away it is not time for people to turn there. And I see pastors smiling. We received feedback on this recently. So, Genesis chapter 17 verses 10 and 11. So what was, what was circumcision? Was it salvation? No. It was done to an infant on the eighth day after they were born. So does that mean they go to heaven because they're circumcised? Well, if you look at the history of Israel real quick, you'll recognize There were people that did not follow God that were circumcised on the eighth day. That's a problem. And so circumcision was just an outward sign of a covenant. That's all it was. Just like baptism is an outward sign of this covenant that's occurred in your life, right? This promise of salvation between you and Christ, the Messiah who resurrected you from spiritual death and brought you alive. You say, this is my outward symbol of my resurrection, my spiritual life beginning. And I am giving an outward symbol. Just like an infant on the eighth day being circumcised, there was a covenant of God between the nation of Israel. And he says in Genesis 17, verse 10, what is it explained as? It says, this is my covenant, which he shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall be circumcised of the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a, a what? A token. A token of the covenant betwixt me and you. Does it ever mention salvation or eternal life? No. It says it's token of a covenant with a nation. That is what it's representative of. If you're going to compare baptism to circumcision to support your, your idea that baptism saves, then you're going to run into a problem because circumcision doesn't save. It was just a sign of a covenant, a token of that covenant. And so let's move to baptism in the next verse. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Baptism, let me clarify real quick. Baptism, when you read that word, and, and I, I send a joking text pastor today, I don't think that word means, what you think it means is, is pretty much how you can summarize the word baptism. Baptism, number one, never means salvation, when it's referring to water, ever. Baptism also does not always mean water. It doesn't. Those two things. Baptism, in reference to water, never means salvation. Baptism does not always mean water. And I'm going to show you some examples of that. Turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. So I said we're going to get a little bit heavy into these doctrinal things tonight. But you're going to get these treasures out of it because now when you hear this, you're going to say, you know, out of the 100% I preached tonight, maybe you remember 20% and that will be enough to get you jump started on a conversation if this comes up. So Matthew chapter 3 verse 11. And I'd like to thank Pastor for introducing Beyond the Fundamentals because uh, he broke this down really well. So it made it a lot easier because I won't make you sit through his dry meticulous methodology, but hopefully liven it up a bit with with how this is presented. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. Who is that? John the Baptist. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. Okay. What baptism is right there? Repentance and water. Okay. Not unfamiliar to the Jews. They had the, the ritual of the custom, right, of circumcision followed by the mikvah if you're a proselyte. Mikvahs were not uncommon. They would use it within the, the priesthood. They also would use it as the, the lay people. They would go through mikvahs. It was a cleansing because all week you were dirty. So if you're going to go to the temple, you'd dip in the water, come out clean. It was called a mikvah. Not an uncommon thing to a Jew. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with, is that water? The Holy Ghost. Last time I checked, the Holy Ghost does not leave me soaking wet. It's not water. What's next? And with fire. Okay. How many baptisms do we see in this one verse? Three. Three different kinds of ways that baptism occurs. We see one with water through repentance and two that have nothing to do with water. One is Holy Ghost. One is fire judgment. There, there's three different types of baptism just mentioned in this one verse. So let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Let's turn there. And then I'll, for the sake of time, I'll read you some verses as we go through and you can mark these and go back and you can, you can validate it. You can be a good Berean and go back and validate what I'm saying to you, and I highly recommend it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. And we were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Okay. Another baptism. A baptism unto Moses. Let's turn to Mark chapter 1. Most of these are pretty common locations. They should go quick. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. What does it say here? John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance. We see a baptism of repentance, but who was that for? That was for the nation of Israel. That was preparing the way for the Messiah, Christ's coming. It was a baptism of repentance for the the Jews, the Israelites. Why? Because Christ was coming. Also shown in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, if you want to see that. All right, let's see. Acts chapter 2. Verse 38, very common verse to go towards. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. What does God say here? Then Peter said unto them, this was after Christ ascended, right? This was tongues came, people are getting saved, they are preaching the gospel in so many languages, there is are salvations occurring left and right by the thousands and, of course, I said, this, this could have very well had the, the Phrygians, the, the folks who lived in Colossae, they could have been present at this. There's a high chance of that. And what does it say here? Now when they, are sorry, uh, we are in verse uh, 38. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. I'm going to pause right there because a lot of proponents of baptismal regeneration like to stop and They say, hey, look, it was for the remission of sins. Okay, all right, let's, let's compare Scripture to Scripture. Is there anywhere else in Scripture that we see any pattern like that? No, but that, don't stop there. I want you to take a phrase in your mind that was, that was given to me when somebody was helping me to understand this when I was coming out of Catholicism, tongue twister, out of Catholicism, they said, look, baptism for remissions of sins. Have you ever heard the phrase, jumping for joy? Okay. If you start jumping, does joy just start coming out of you? No. You're jumping, why? For the joy that is in you. You're jumping for joy. This is a baptism for the remission of sins. It's the same thing. Jumping for joy. Baptism for the remission of sins. You're being baptized for the remission of sins that has occurred in you. It matches all the rest of Scripture. If you take this one verse out of context, that's where they'll twist it and say, Look, baptismal regeneration, right there. And now you're smart enough and you go, Nope, nope, jump for joy. Just remember that, jump for joy when you come across this and somebody tells you. You say, no, baptism for the remission of sins, which occurred. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So we see another one there, the baptism. After salvation, of course, this is the most common that you'll see also in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, right? Go and baptize. This is, this is the water. This is the, sins have, the remission of the sins have occurred. You're being baptized in the water, and this is what we see today. This is, this is why we baptize. You are celebrating, and you are showing that just like the circumcision, you are showing the outward symbol that I am in God's family. I have been adopted into the heritage. I have been saved. My sins have been forgotten as far as the east from the west. The remission of sins has happened and I'm alive spiritually where I was dead before. And I'm buried with him. And oh, we're going to get there. Buried with him in baptism. And so, Matthew chapter 20, verse 22. I went the wrong way. Gives more time if I go the wrong way. Matthew chapter 20. And verse 22. It says here, But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? And of course this is when the apostles were we're bickering over some things, and, and Christ responds to them. It says, Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? All right, how many times in the scripture do we see Christ baptized? One time with John the Baptist. He's talking about a baptism he's going to be baptized with. Do we ever see Christ baptized because of a remission of sins? No. Do we ever see him baptized? that did a regeneration because he was lost? No, we don't. So what is he talking about? Baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, they say unto him, we are able. And, okay, if he was talking about John's baptism, either they're super dense or they know he's talking about something else. I don't think they're that dense. They did have a struggle understanding things, just as I would have or you would have in the moment because there was a lot of things being revealed that were new. Christ the Messiah was not exactly what they expected him to be. And there was a lot of new things, and they were struggling, but I don't think with this. And he said unto them, ye shall, ye shall drink indeed of my cup. Shall. You're going to. It's something that's going to happen in the future. And be baptized, okay, be baptized in the future, just like his was, with the baptism that I am baptized with. What is that baptism? There's a baptism of, of suffering. That's what was coming for Who is he talking to? He's talking to his apostles, his future apostles that were going to spread the the message, the gospel message, who were going to be martyred for their faith. Is there not a crown for martyrs? He says, you're going to be baptized into a baptism of suffering with me. I'm going to be baptized in suffering on a cross for everyone. But you're going to join me in a baptism of suffering of martyrdom. And so they, of course, did not understand what this was, but to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given for them who is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Ah, there we go, back to dense heads again, right? <laughs> they go, oh, so we can be picked. That's not what he was talking about. Of course, they, they understand that much later. But, uh, and so um, a, a baptism of suffering. Matthew 28, turn there. I decided we're just going to look at all these. Matthew 28. Matthew 28 verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Okay? Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 20. That is where I meant to go. So go back in time. If, if this is a courtroom, next to the last statement I accidentally read uh, a note up. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. I already mentioned to you the Great Commission. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. We see another baptism. Which sometime you were disobedient when, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein... Few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. Okay. Did Noah and his family go in the water, by the way? No. So, is the water in the, in the account of Noah ever used to submerge and save the human beings that were aboard that vessel? No, actually it was the opposite. Not going in the water was the salvation in that. The ark is Christ, right? The water must be Not a salvation thing here. So let's look at this. The like figure, right? Not literal. This is a figure. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. So we know it's a figure. Automatically, whatever's happening here is a figure. It is not a literal salvation thing that's happening. It is a figure of something that occurred. And he says, and and what it is, is an answer of a good conscience towards God. is why you did it. Whatever this is, it was because you, you with a good conscience are in front of God saying, I'm willing to do this thing, right? And what is it? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What was Noah and his family? They didn't go in the water. They were in an ark being saved from the water. What is the water representative of? A death. What was God doing with the water on the face of the earth at the time? It was a cleansing, a purification, a removal of the things that were evil and wicked, right? So, what was it? Noah and his family were being set apart, holy, and sanctified for the use of God as the pathway, as the pathway. And the, the mode which God chose, you are going to continue my salvation message through you eight, who I have put aboard this vessel. You have been set aside, holy and sanctified for a purpose. That's what holy means, set aside for a purpose. We see that this baptism is a death to sin and a sanctification to the believer. And it was chosen because of a good conscience, meaning you know you now hold Nothing against you with God. You're clean. And so we see here that, after we went through all these verses, we see three different kinds of baptism in Matthew 3, a baptism under Moses, a baptism of repentance for Israel, a baptism after salvation, baptism of suffering, a baptism of death to sin and sanctification. We see water baptisms and non-water baptisms. So what is the one baptism that matters? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12:13. 1 Corinthians 12:13 is where the rubber meets the road here. For by one Spirit we are all baptized, what are you being baptized by? One Spirit. Capital S, Spirit of God, we are all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Turn to Ephesians 4 5. Ephesians 4 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's it. I said, there are other baptisms in Scripture. But Ephesians 4, 5, wow, that starts to put the nail in the coffin on this whole, every word of baptism means the same thing, and it's always water, and it's salvation. No. What does it say? There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So what is the baptism that matters? Turn to Acts eleven sixteen. Acts eleven sixteen. Then remembered I, the word of the Lord, how that he said. Okay, pause right there. All right. What are we looking at here? Is that uh, clearly something was forgotten when he says, then I remembered I. Let's back up a few verses here, right? Verse 13. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood up and said unto him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. Oh, this is when... Peter went to go witness to somebody, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. What were they saved by? The preaching. They were saved by the words. They were saved by the gospel that Peter was being called in to give to them. He says, You were saved by the words. As I began to speak, the Holy, the Holy Ghost fell on them and on us at the as on us at the beginning. Peter is seeing salvation occur through preaching and the holy ghost moving in on their lives the same as it did to them because of their faith and something triggers in his mind he says then remembered i whoa he forgot something he forgot not because he has bad memory it's didn't make quite make sense when he heard it from christ the first time but now it's clicking and he goes Oh, I got that's what Christ meant when he told us that before he ascended. He says, "Then I remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost." The salvation baptism is from the Holy Spirit of God that only comes by the word of God that comes by the believing and faith in the word of God. Never once by water. Is there any water in this verse? Not unless the Holy Spirit is a synonym for a lake. I don't think so. Salvation occurred by a baptism of the Spirit of God on somebody's life. And so that's why it's it's important to know that baptism is never once, never once with water tied to salvation in Scripture. It is only ever tied to salvation when there's no water involved, and it's just the Spirit of God through a baptism of His Holy Spirit. That's the only time we see it. And so, uh, and so the other scripture does not even support baptism with water as a mode of salvation. Every time you look, go back through those verses when it's water, it's never tied to salvation. It's tied to something else. It's tied to repentance. It's tied to death. It's tied to purification, a symbol of purification, of holiness. Never once is it salvation. And so, and so Ephesians 4.5, only one Lord, only one faith, only one baptism. This means that there's only one that saves. And this defeats this whole charismatic view of that when you get saved, you have to get baptized, but then you have to speak in tongues. Or else you're not saved. A vain philosophy of the world, right? Something they decided, oh, whoops, for the past was it 1,800 years or so, they decided, ah, everybody had it wrong and went to hell. We just figured out you got to speak in tongues. No, it's a vain philosophy and a thing that came up that's it's not true. And so it defeats them because there's just one baptism. Which one? It, was it the tongues? Was it the water? Was it the Holy Spirit? Come on, charismatics. Which one are you going after? Because that verse is going to confound you. You're going to have a problem with that one. And so, the one baptism, spiritual baptism, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We look at Galatians 3, 27 and 28. For as many of you who been baptized in the Christ have put on Christ. Baptized into Christ. Nothing to do with water. Paul is happy, uh, happy in 1 Corinthians 1, 14 that he never baptized anybody. Does that mean that he's glad that he didn't send anybody to heaven? That makes no sense. He said, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. There was some disputing over, oh, I was baptized of Paul, I was baptized of Apollos, I was baptized of Christ, right? There was a, they were having this dispute, and he says, I'm glad I never baptized any of you. You know, for a guy who said, I'd go to hell if that meant my own people could be saved, that'd be kind of a weird statement for him to say, I'm glad you all went to hell, and I didn't baptize any of you. It just doesn't make sense. you got to not pull these out of, con, out of, you can't keep them, You cannot pull them out of context, otherwise you start to think thoughts like this. And so Romans 1, 16 and 17, what's the power of salvation? The gospel of God. The gospel of Christ is the power of salvation. That's where it comes from. It doesn't say baptism is the power of salvation. And so let's turn back to Colossians, all right? And I'm going to check the time here. Like I said, this one goes pretty deep, so I was going to take a break. If, if it went too long. But Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Okay, quiz time, because we just went through all of these different kinds of baptism, right? What is he talking about in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 now? Because if you're going to correlate circumcision to baptism, and baptism always to water, and baptism always to salvation, then what is he talking about? Buried with him in baptism. Is that water? Number one. Is that salvation? Number two. Because there is a baptism salvation. What is it? The Holy Spirit. There is a baptism of water. Is that what this is talking about? Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Okay. So, of the kinds of baptism that we discussed, which kind is this? He says, you are baptized, buried with him in baptism. It is the symbolic Burying of sin, it's gone. He says, you were buried with him. It was, a, it was the same as Noah. You, those sins, that badness, it, all everything that separated you from God, just like Noah with the water, it was a, it, you were separated from God. And now we are burying that just as the wicked was buried under the water during the flood. And the remission. Right? The remission of those sins. Is a symbolic act. So he says, but what? How are you risen is important. How does he say you're risen? With him through what? The faith of the effective work, the operation of God, which is what? Christ raising from the dead. It is important to understand these fundamental doctrinal beliefs that you hold as a Christian because baptismal regeneration will destroy a church. Baptism through tongues and all of these other things that, these, that religion teaches is going to destroy our church. We have to stay on our toes and say, ooh, you know what? I dug out some treasure and wisdom from God's word, and I know baptism doesn't always need water. I know baptism does not correlate to salvation except for one way, and if it's talking about this, that's not talking about salvation. This is talking about something else. And so baptized into death. And so let's turn to Ephesians 1, and we'll we'll wrap up this part here with Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... Okay. And whom also, after that, ye believed. Okay, this is the pattern of salvation, right? It was preached. It was heard. It was the gospel of salvation that was preached. It was heard. It was understood. And whom also that ye made a decision. And what? Believed. You believed. Ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. It is shows you this is salvation people is that it was preached, the gospel was heard, the gospel was understood, a decision was made and belief happened, salvation occurred and you now have the inheritance that was promised to you. And what is the sign of that covenant in the New Testament under Jesus Christ? Baptism. And water, and so remember those things. If you ever hear baptismal regeneration, Church of Christ, right? Uh, you ever hear baptism by any other means of salvation? It's pretty much once you once you remove faith as the mode of salvation, that's the big red flag. If anything else replaces that as the mode of salvation, then it's wrong because that was the way that God chose. Scripture backs that up. God chose faith to be how we get saved. And so we'll, we'll wrap up here at verses 13 through 15 real quick. These will be considerably shorter, and then we'll continue from there. And take a break next week. I guess I accidentally wrote a second sermon and didn't realize it. So, and you being dead in your sins in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he hath quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. You know, the, the Gentiles weren't circumcised. This isn't a surprise. He says, Colossae, a bunch of Greeks, a lot of Gentiles, they're not circumcised. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he hath quickened together with him. He made you alive with him. You don't need to go to the Jewish traditions. You don't need to turn to the Jew. You do not need to turn to Israel. You just need to turn to your faith and that will make you alive in Christ. And he's going to get into the ordinances and he's saying, "You're you're not yoked to those ordinances anymore. In fact, I wrote them out. And he says, and quicken together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, that would be kind of earth-shaking to Jewish people to read. And the Gentiles weren't dumb. They, they knew how the Jews practiced things in this area. But the, to the Jew, that would be groundbreaking to them, was the fact that you have forgiven all trespasses without sacrifice and the ordinances that are laid out in Leviticus 16. There were specific things that a Jew had to do in Leviticus 16 depending on the type of sin, private, public, uh, persistent sins, like all these, these different ways they had to sacrifice. That's why when, when the lame man was lowered through the, the roof and Christ said his sins were forgiven, that was the death penalty on Christ right there. You're telling me that you have the power of God to give the remission of sins. When we live in a world where We have to do these sacrifices and these ordinances that were laid out for us in Leviticus and these things that you have given to us, you just pretty much wave your hand and it's done? This would have been earth-shattering to a Jew to hear is that Christ just forgives all trespasses. And to a Gentile of all things. A filthy Gentile can become a part of their inheritance just because they heard somebody say something and they believed it. And what else, what's next? Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. It's a reference back to Leviticus. He says, no, I'm going I'm to blot those out. I'm not going to worry about any of the ordinances that are against you. The things, the yoke which was put on your neck that was so heavy, the law, I'm not going to worry about these things anymore once you have faith in me. These are wiped away. It's taken off of your back. He says, blind out the the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. The law in Leviticus and what we see in the Old Testament was never meant to be permanent. It wasn't. He says, I I blotted those things out. It's done. Jesus Christ fulfilled that law. And it's no more a requirement. In fact, he's blotted out those ordinances. And so to the Jew, you go, wow, so you just took... And remember, they didn't have the New Testament written to them. You just took everything that we know, every tradition, every ordinance, every practice, every ritual that we know, and you just said you blotted it out for the sake of somebody preaching, and now they have the inheritance that we have lived our whole lives trying to hold on to. You can see where the offense starts to build up with them. He says, blotting out the handwriting of those ordinances... They're contrary to us anyways. says, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. It says, everything that was outlined in Leviticus for the practice of purification from all those different sins was made as simple on that day when he was nailed to the cross. He says, I'm taking all of it. I am nailing it to this cross. The covenant is done I am not, I, I, I mean, that, that Old Testament is done. I'm not going to hold you underneath of that anymore. The law has been fulfilled through me, and everything that was held against you is being nailed to the cross. He says, just come to me. That's all he's asking. Just come to me. And what is the best part is, remember when we started with this, it said, if you, if you allow the rudiments of the world and the vain philosophies of men and the traditions to creep into the church, that it's going to spoil you of the treasures of God. It's going to rob you is what that means. It comes back around and he says, no. He says, take a look at this. And what does that mean when Christ nailed all that to the cross and that you are forgiven just through faith in him? It says, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly he mocked the wickedness of this world and said, you have taken what I meant for good and you have tried to corrupt it. You have tried to mislead people. You have tried to take them off the path. You have been feeding them weak theology to my chosen people for so long. And he says, I now openly on a cross nailed to it where it should be shame. I am proclaiming the glory of my son on that cross because he is now openly showing you that you have been spoiled and robbed of everything you hope to get. What well, you meant for wicked, God meant for good. You thought leading Christ to the cross was going to be the end of something. No, Satan, this was the start. And so I just want to clarify, faith has always been the mode of salvation, ever since the beginning. It's always been the mode. It was the law and the yoke they held that Christ was saying, no, we're done with that. I fulfilled that. And so what is it though he says in having spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it It's amazing. And so what's amazing to think though is that well Christ well Christ was up there and I even I was shocked by the, when you look at when you look at this there were people who argued with this and said no Christ was never nailed to the cross. This was interpreted wrong. And you go, well, why did he show Thomas holes? Like, what, what was he probing? Were the ropes pointy? Like, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure that meant that they drove something through his hand that was sharp, and Thomas was feeling it. And there's a reason why nails are mentioned, because they're sharp, and they leave holes, and that's what was used. It says that it was nailed upon that cross. And what's just wonderful to us is, is uh, I'm a Gentile. I, I was not born into Israel. I'm not a Jew. What's wonderful to us, though, is that when we look at this and we start to dig out this treasure of what's here, Satan's not done trying to spoil. He says, I can still spoil you. I can still rob you of those things. I can still give you weak theology, and I can still make you an ineffective person for Christ. I can actually make you an ineffective church says, if I can just spoil you of those. But every time you turn back to Colossians, remember I said, every book kind of has a theme. When you turn back to Colossians, you say, no, I am saved by a Holy Spirit. That's what I am saved by. And everything that you claim against me, everything you go up and you profess in front and say how filthy and putrid and nasty I am, God put it on that cross that day. It's nailed and done. I don't have to have it anymore. In fact, he doesn't want me to have any more. In fact, anything I do to try to earn forgiveness was contrary to me to start with. It worked against me. And so as we, as we close up here, um, we'll continue into the, the different modes in which, which um, can give you weak theology and get you off track. But that one, those rituals of circumcision and baptism, and Satan still trying to use those today, to confuse and confound and make that weak theology enter the church through baptismal regeneration and all these other things will get us off track. So hopefully that was a help to you, um, even though that was kind of a dry doctrinal subject, but uh, hopefully you mark some verses there and you'll have some ammunition against it if it comes up.